today, and I am going to direct your attention to the book of First Kings, chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, and we'll also be looking at the book of Luke, verse chap- chapter 4. We're going to learn some things from the Word today that we've not seen before. I remember many years ago speaking to a very dear brother who came down uh, from the headquarters of the Assemblies of God, and he was part of a number of our um, uh, gatherings, both here and in uh, in Maryland. Uh, Very dear brother. We're still in touch with one another, but one day we were talking about, um, and he was asking what, what, what God was doing among us as a result of our prayer times. And he recognized that we were teaching a lot of things from the Scripture that, um, that were not commonly uh, recognized, even though they were, they were accurate. And something just came out of my mouth that um, it was one of those things where I know the Spirit said something before... Um, before I even knew it was coming forth. And I said, well, you know, we just kind of believe that every time we come together, the Lord wants to show us something from his word that we've never seen before. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's kind of a, that's really an audacious statement, not in a bad way, but it's just something that you don't normally hear coming forth. And, but he said, I believe that's the way it should be. And so that's really what we've lived here, isn't it? God always wants to show us something from his living word that we've not seen before. And earlier this week, God was speaking very, very intimately with me about a number of things. And um, as a result of that conversation, the passage we're going to look at in 1 Kings really came to mind, and it's about the, the widow from Zarephath. And um, this, what we're going to learn, I'm just giving you a forewarning, gives tremendous meaning to what Jesus said in Luke 4 during his first sermon and why it was that the people were trying to throw him off the precipice of the hill. And I think as well, what we're going to see talks a lot about where we are today, not only in our world, but what our mission is as saints. And it's all part of this key um, understanding between Elijah and this woman that God commanded to provide for him during basically the entirety of the three and a half years of drought, and what then Jesus referenced in Luke chapter 4. And and really, I'm just giving you a, a precursor to this, the whole idea of being from Nazareth, which is what was said in the Scripture, can anything good come out of Nazareth, is part of this understanding. And frankly, even though I've studied this passage and a number of times we've talked about different dimensions of the word, I've never seen this before. And, and I think that, that the reason God is bringing this to us now 
is because we're facing this very scenario. This scenario that we're going to talk about is something that the enemy always has been capable of fouling up. And I, and I think as well that part of the, the onslaught of the pro- progressive ideologies uh, where they say that all truth is God's truth, we just need to all become like everybody else to show God's love, is the perversion of the thing that God tried to do here with Elijah and what Jesus referred to in Luke chapter 4. So this is a very exciting passage, and we're just going to walk through it. But um, I do believe that beyond the fact that we're going to understand some things we've not seen, uh, it really does speak a rhema truth into what God from his throne is, is attempting to do in our day. And it's wonderful that it happens in the life of Elijah, since we are called to be those who are very similar to Elijah in welcoming those that God is calling to serve as Elijah's. You know, the Scripture speaks about how that in the last days, Elijah is going to, the spirit of Elijah is going to be coming, and the hearts of the fathers are going to be drawn to the children, and the children to the fathers. That is a signature mark of the last day, and we are embracing, we're embracing that. Um, now, the other, the other factor to this is, is that these children are coming from many different walks of life. They're coming from many different places and from many different backgrounds, but the key to reaching them is not to become like them but to be an example as a father to what things should be and what the Word of God says. That's what they need. That's what every one of these Elishas need. They need the foundational pattern, the foundational rock in love without becoming like the Elishas to stand on behalf of what God has given because that's the heart of the Father. Isn't that what God did with us? Isn't that what God did with us? We'd been Christians for many, many years, and God called us to pray in a way that we had not prayed. And we began to be aligned with the throne of God to really know our Father. And then our Father began to teach us His ways, which is exactly what Jesus said over and over again. I've come to do the will of my Father. I must be about my Father's business. Uh, I... I am, I am not seeking my own. I'm doing the will of the one who sent me. So the essential dimension of walking with our Father and then patterning the Father's heart, the Father's love, the Father's will on behalf of those children who will come alongside and then follow the Father and become fathers themselves is the essence of how the kingdom exponentially grows. If there is a time when what the Father represents is removed, civilization crumbles. And that's another factor that the enemy has tried to instill on our nation. You've heard the ideology of many of the Marxist ideologies that have been espoused in various ways over the past few years. One of the main ones was to eliminate the role of the Father in the home. And to, di- and, to, and to dissolve what we believe as the, the bedrock of what a home should be. 
you've heard that taught in many different ways. Some of the people that were really exalted, uh, some of the groups that were really exalted and made a lot of money had that in their foundational purpose online. And when heat started to be brought against them, they yanked it off. But it's that idea from the enemy. He hates the Father. He hates the role of sons before the Father. And if he can remove that idea of fatherhood, of what that represents uh, in, in the home, that, that idea that, and, and really, in the home, you know, it's not just the father ruling as, a, as an iron fist. I mean, if you're really in a functional home, you know, you have, you have many contributions to what the role of the father is. But somebody has got to say, this is what we stand for. And everybody else is in agreement. It's not ruling over somebody. But the idea of fatherhood stems from the throne. And um, it's, it's very important. So we say all that in the backdrop of First Kings. God spoke to a widow. Who, there was no father in the house. And this is the backdrop of what we're going to read about here in First Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. The word of the Lord came unto Elijah, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded, note that, a widow woman there to sustain you. Note that too. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, Neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And uh, that, that term there really can, is often used to talk about a full year, but it can also be uh, easily pluralized. And we know that uh, what you read then coming is that this little boy later on got sick and he died. And Elijah was able to see the miracle of the child being raised from the dead. And, um, and then um, at that point in chapter 18, it came to pass after many days, there's that phrase again, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, so there's been that expanse of time. Go shell yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. 
So this woman, it wasn't just a, a quick meal on the road uh, for the prophet. She was sustaining. She was sustaining this man of God for the expansion of all of that time of drought. And um, God had commanded her beforehand, which is really, really interesting to me. But let me give you just a little bit of background as to what Zarephath was. And I think this is important for us to see. Zarephath, the the word Zarephath meant um, a place of refining. It was literally a place where things were put together and formed and created. It was a it was a metallurgy term, and Zarephath served on the coast between Sidon and Tyre. Now, why is it important for us to know about this? Because remember when Ezekiel wrote about the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre. Um, this is a, this is a, it was a really crucial place in the history of Israel when David built the was was preparing um, his kingdom. Remember, he was a dear friend with Hiram, king of Tyre, and God bonded them together. And this area supplied not only for David, but then when Solomon was building the temple, the, the, the resources of that area of the coastline provided for the building of the temple. So this was a very important place. And we'll also reference a time when Jesus and his disciples were there resorting by the coast, and there was a single woman who came and said, Master, my daughter is grievously possessed of a devil. And that whole discussion of the dogs eating crumbs from the table comes in. And she says, you know, even the dogs eat the crumbs. And Jesus said, for that saying, you're going to be free. What was the significance of that saying? It wasn't that she was being a smart mouth. That had meaning in this whole discussion. So if we really want to understand what happened with Tyre and Sidon and why Ezekiel talked about um, the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre and their competitions with Daniel, we, we, and, and what this represented here um, in, in, um, in regard to Elijah and then why Jesus would quote this when he preached his first sermon out of Isaiah 61 We've got to get a grip on this, and not just for, this should be enough, but not just for our understanding about why the Bible talks about these things in a historical context, but what is at the heart of what God is doing today. So, let's give a little bit of history here. Um, During the time when David and Solomon were dealing with, with uh, Tyre. Uh, Tyre was really the capital of this seafaring kingdom. And it, it formed from the Hebrew word, it really should be pronounced Tur, because it is formed from the Aramaic Hebrew word Sur, which means the solid rock. Remember, that's the thing that Moses smote. And this was on an island off the coast that was just a solid rock. And it was deemed to be an impenetrable kingdom, and it was a a prideful place. Now, between it and to the north where Sidon was, Sidon was the main port city of this little kingdom. And from that place, boats went out and boats came in, 
And in between them was this city called Zarephath, which was kind of like the high-tech center of the kingdom. They would create things. They would, uh, they would make new metals. They would forge things. And um, so it was a really unique operational place. This is where the Phoenicians were. This was all the Phoenicians. And when the Greeks came in, they, they called this place Phoenicia, which meant purple, which really spoke about their ability to create. Because purple, Lydia, seller of purple, she had some moolah because if you could derive purple and sell it, you were at the top of the fashion chain. And that, was, that really spoke about the creativity of these people. So you had, you had Tyre and Sidon, and then you had um, Israel basically fall and be sent away to captivity. And during that time where they were in bondage, um, it was at that time that Tyre and Sidon really became corrupted, which prompted Ezekiel to start writing about how the enemy had gotten control of this incredible commercial port creativity, wayfaring, seafaring. You know, history details the, uh, the victors, and I don't think we realize how important this kingdom of Phoenicia was. In fact, in Egyptian hieroglyphics, the Egyptians were always fighting against the Phoenicians. There are depictions of these Phoenician people and the helmets they were in, in, in uh, reliefs all throughout uh, the archaeological discoveries in Egypt today. They were a fearsome group. They were mighty in the Navy. They, it kind of reminded me of the way England was uh, when they ruled the wave. Their Navy dictated what could be and what couldn't be. This is what the Phoenicians were, and Egypt even were troubled by it. But by the time Israel was carried away into captivity, darkness seemed to come on the land, and the enemy got a really strong foothold in, um, in Tyre and Sidon. Now, you remember what Gabriel said to Daniel about having done battle with the prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia was coming? Remember that? Well, not long after this, a guy named, anybody hear of him? Alexander the Great rose up. And Alexander the Great became the big conqueror of, of the world, basically. In fact, he was so dynamic that he conquered everything there was to conquer and was sad because there were no more places to conquer. You see, uh, Alexandria, Egypt was named after him. All the Egyptians, everybody came into a line with, with Alexander. When Alexander came to this rock island named Sur, the king of Tyre would not come out because he thought he was impenetrable. Well, Alexander wasn't having anything to do with that. So from the coast, he started putting his army together to building a, a walkway, a causeway through the sea to connect that rock island. And he did it. That place, that connection was still in place when Jesus was walking the earth. And he came, put that place under siege, and conquered it. So Alexander came through and did all kinds of incredible things and really in that intertestamental period put his influence, the Grecian influence, on 
all of the Middle East, which is, you say, why is that important? Well, what do we study today when we look at the New Testament? Why do we talk about the Greek language says this? Because that is what Alexander brought into play. Why did the Jewish people decide we're going to have the Septuagint because we're going to have the Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek? Why? Because of Alexander. And then in that that Greek influence then created the nation that was known as Carthage. Carthage is known as the new city. What was it the new city of? Tyre. All of that idea of Tyre and Sidon came down in North Africa and built the Carthaginian kingdom. And they did war with Rome. You know, you had the Punic Wars, basically is the Phoenician Wars. And um, Rome was battling. The first one with, uh, you, you can study about this. It's really a cool study. Some of you are probably bored to death, but it's a cool study. And it affects on what's going on when Jesus comes onto the scene. You had this, uh, this man, this general called Hamilcar, who was, oh, was basically the driving force of Carthage during the first war. Then the second Punic War, which happened a few years later through Hamilcar's son, a guy named Hannibal. Anybody hear about Hannibal? Who basically almost destroyed the Roman Empire. I mean, he took those elephants and crossed over the Alps and attacked Rome from the north. And um, the, final, the final battles, um, when he stayed too long there, and Rome was able through Scipio to attack to attack Carthage, and it basically derailed the Carthaginians. Now, those of you who don't care about that, you've probably seen the movie Gladiator, right? Maybe some of you did, with Russell Crowe. And the big, the big thing where uh, Russell Crowe, when the emperor comes out and says, what is your name, Gladiator? And he finally turns around, he says, my name is Maximus Decimus, I'm the commander of the armies of the north. Well, that little battle that they did there in the Colosseum was supposed to be Scipio against the barbarian hordes, and that was supposed to depict the battle of Carthage. So all of this was in sway, and this Tyre and Sidon was a major place. I mean, it was, it was an incredible arm of the of the Greek Empire which then uh, was used to bring Rome into play so by the time um, by the time Jesus came um, all of this was a history Rome was controlling they were still using the basically Greek and Aramaic and um, everything that he speaks about was part of what their their history was. I mean, from the time Jesus came, let's go back just a couple of hundred years, and all of these things had happened, and all the people knew about it. Now, why was Nazareth such a place that the, the Jews in Jerusalem didn't like? Because Nazareth was not far from Tyre. There was, uh, archaeologists are discovering a major Greek city which has been covered over by the sands of time right beside Nazareth. It's probably where Joseph and Jesus did a lot of work. And Nazareth, I know 
it's, it's a really weird word that can mean a crown, but it also means being able to take lots of influences and make something new, and hence you gain the crown. That's what Nazareth meant. So for the Jews in Jesus' day, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You're basically saying, look, our identity is lost because all these other influences have come in and you really can't trust anything that Tyre and Sidon do. You can't trust anything that Nazareth does. And really, the northern kingdom, Samaria, because it's all a hybrid. And um, this is the place that God sent Elijah (laughs) to stay during these three and a half years. It's also the place that God sent his son to grow up. Why? Why? You know, another thing about Tyre and Sidon, and we don't really recognize this, this woman, this this widow woman was not an anomaly. See, we read about the widow woman here, and we think, oh, it's a sad thing. Maybe her husband fell off a roof or something, or maybe, you know, maybe he, uh, maybe he, R-U-N-N-O-F-T. You know, we don't know where he is. But one of the things that was common in Tyre and Sidon, because they're in the day, a good portion of their men were seafaring men. And, um, you know, Hiram, the king of Tyre that was David's friend, his mother was a widow. And this whole area was populated by women, many of whom their husbands went away and never came back. And, and so being a widow in this area was part and parcel with what that whole region was known for. Now, not every man who went away didn't come back, but a lot of them did. And so widowhood was a scourge in this area. So I think all of that is a backdrop. You have, you have Elijah coming in here before Tyre had really turned into a demonic area. Um, he comes and there's a widow. The drought that came was because of what Elijah said. And God was judging Ahab, and God was judging Jezebel. And, and so he sends this man of God to this woman. He commands this woman, God does, to sustain, to, to make sure that this prophet was taken care of for as long as the prophet needed help. And this woman was committed to it. So you have, you have all of this understanding and um, uh, it's, just, it's just very interesting. So let's skip ahead to Luke chapter 4. Just remember what, what Jesus said. He took the scroll. He reads, uh, you know, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me. And he reads all that. And then he says, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. He says that. But he doesn't stop there. Then he says... You know, there were many widows in Israel that were around during the time when Elijah was there, but yet the one widow in Zarephath was the one God sent this man to. And there were lots of people that were lepers during those days, but God sent a man named Naaman to come to the man of God, and God healed him. Now, why would Jesus... 
on the day that he is presenting himself as the anointed one, he's reading from the book of Isaiah 61. It might have been smarter if we were writing his sermon to stop right there. But instead, he talks about Elijah and this woman, and he talks about Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard those words, they rose up and said, we got to kill this guy. Isn't that interesting? So why are all these things in these crucial times? When Elijah, which is what we're supposed to be patterning, when um, the Ahab and the Jezebel situation, which is our world, and being able to stop the rain and bring the rain, which is part of what the saints are supposed to be doing in the days to come, uh, why, why would God cause Jesus to reference that in Nazareth <laughs> when, uh, when he's presenting himself for ministry? Because it has always been God's, God's plan for the nations to come and serve him. Solomon was given the wisdom and the power and the authority to spread the kingdom through that temple around the world. Instead of doing that, he became like the demonic nations that he was supposed to be overcoming. There's always been the problem of going out on behalf of what God has called you to do, representing the Father for those who don't have fathers, representing the Father for those who don't know the provision of God, and to speak to them and to maintain the course of what God's given without you becoming like the people you've been sent to. That has always been the problem. That was Saul's problem. That was Saul's problem. By the end of his life, he's consulting the witch of Endor. By the end of his life, he's trying to do things like those around him were doing. That's what Israel wanted. Give us a king. You know, God wants to be the God. And there's always a problem. Um, And the enemy, you know, Israel comes into the land. God says, don't take wives of the people of the land. And sure enough, there they go. And they become more like the people of the land than God's people. It's always been that problem. And you think in, in, in advance of what God has promised he's going to do for us. Over these past few years, the enemy has come in with this idea of we've got to lay down our identity. We've got to stop declaring the word. We've got to stop speaking in diversities of tongues. We've got to become like the world so that we can reach the world. Oh, we can't can't be such stoics that just believe the scripture. There are other words that came uh, over in India and over in the, 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 the lands where Buddha is worshipped, and, and, or, or even here today. I mean, we don't want to be narrow-minded. Everybody has a truth. And it's like before the great release of the Elijahs to speak what the Father wants, the enemy hits with this amazing Uh, watering down of the truths of God, disputing the Word, disputing even the idea of the Father. Let's remove that totally. You see, 
how the enemy was doing kind of a, a preemptive attack in that really unique way against the Father um, and against his ways, uh, the enemy would, would try to do that before the great outpouring that God has promised through what we're believing for. Do you see that? So the fact that Jesus references this, and what about Naaman the Syrian? Why was that? Because Naaman had to come from an other land, and he had to come and submit himself to the word of the prophet and to the river that was in Israel. And he had to dip seven times in that river to be whole. Um, know what God has given you and cherish it because it is the answer for what the world needs. Um, don't go up into Damascus, as Naaman said. We, don't we have more beautiful rivers than this Jordan? The answer's not in those rivers. The answer's in the place that God has given you. And the answer is what you know you're supposed to be representing before God. So God, during the time when Ahab and Jezebel had basically ruined the kingdom of Israel, God pronounces judgment through this prophet and sends him to this power base on the coast, a city that represents creativity and dominion in all of that Mediterranean basin, to a widow woman and a little boy who was fatherless, and Elijah abode there. And God commanded this woman to be ready for that. Do you know that God is commanding people all over the world right now to prepare to sustain the message that God is sending you and you and all of us as saints to go and bring to them? That message of who the Father is and His uh, his unwavering strength to provide, no matter what's going on. This is what the world needs today. And this is what God is calling us to represent. So Elijah goes there. Before there were any Elijahs, here Elijah is showing forth the role of the Father, the role of waiting on God. And a widow woman had been commanded by God, to sustain this prophet, to welcome him into their little home, to provide. And God miraculously provided the cruise of oil unfailing. God miraculously provided. Elisha did a, a very similar thing, but in different circumstances. Elisha was, was a house, a little apartment was made for him by, by a, a woman and a man who were obviously very wealthy. Uh, a different scenario, but Elijah comes in where there is no hope. Elijah comes in where there is no father. Elijah comes in where there is great dearth in the land, where the judgment of God is coming, and he affirms the role of the father. Now, it's interestingly, um, Elisha comes then in the midst of people hearing and saying, you know, we, we've got to bring this man in. I mean, he's bringing a message. Uh, are we willing to let that kind of thing happen through the Elishas that come? Of course, we must because it's the expansion of the kingdom. And, um, but both of them, their sons die. And both of them 
God comes in a very similar way with the prophet stretching out upon the young lad and God bringing life back into the boy. That's a message for another day. But the point is that the enemy will always attack something further on down the line that God has done. And it's not only the role of the prophet to welcome the visitation. It's not only the role of the prophet to see the provision of God. It's not only the role of the prophet to to represent what God the Father is doing through his word, but to also service through the power of the Spirit what God births. And we need to see that. That day is coming for us. I don't know how it's going to manifest, but it, but it is coming. So here you have Elijah, and here you have uh, this woman. Here you have this really unique place that was one of the most unsung keys to all of the world. And uh, God sends this man of God there. I think that is so interesting. And then for Jesus to reference this after his reading of the scroll of Isaiah 61, and when he talks about, he really says this, when he talks about, you know, um, (laughs) God dealt with this woman and God dealt with this general, why are you living your lives the way you're living them? And they got furious because the enemy had gotten control of them. They were subservient. They were so much a people of the world rather than a people of God, and they didn't, they didn't like what Jesus was saying. He could have left well enough alone and just said, you know, the Spirit of the Lord God is on me, and everybody said, is this not the carpenter's son? They could have all been applauding. He could have worked a couple of miracles, and that would have been a great beginning, wouldn't it? But after his reading of the scroll, he brings this thing up. Why? I think it's because we recognize that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon us, upon you, and he is a, He's ascending you, He's anointed you to go out and preach the good news to those who are the poor, to those who are weary, to those who are enslaved. And what is that message? Not, oh, you poor thing, everything's going to be okay, but the message of the Father the thing that Jesus represented. And, you know, at this time when we rise up and say that, there are a lot of people who don't like it. Even those who have left the walk of the saints, they don't like it because they've determined that the way to reach the world is to become like the world. They've determined that we don't want to be restricted to the Scripture or God's plan through Pentecost. We just want to do things to go along and get along. Look, there's a lot of people that are coming to this, but they don't know the Father. They're fragile. They're weak. They all need safe spaces. They all need to be catered to. Everybody has to bellyache and tell their story instead of finding an identity through which God can move to believe Him. It's the same thing that happened in Jesus' day. It's the same battle. You know, it's very interesting, too. Remember, I referenced the fact that one day in the Scriptures, Jesus was meeting with his disciples on the shores of the Mediterranean there in Tyre and Sidon. It it might have even been right by Zarephath. And remember, that woman came and said, you know, my daughter is grievously vexed of the devil. And Jesus said, 
Is it right for us to give the sons meat to you, to the dogs? And why did he say that? You know, sometimes we say, that's kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say, no matter whether you like dogs or not, to call somebody a dog is another thing. <laughs> you know? Well, it's interesting because the Carthaginians, who were an offshoot of this very area, were lovers of dogs. I mean, you study the history of it, and the, the Canary tribe that was there raised dogs. They, they, um, they would take dogs, and this is kind of gross, but when they'd get out into the wilderness, if, if they had a lot of their dogs with them, if they didn't have anything to eat, sometimes they would sacrifice a dog and eat that flesh. And, but, but they were just dog lovers. In fact, the Canary Islands, just off the coast of northern Africa, was named after this tribe, which was the basis of the Carthaginians. So when Jesus is talking about dogs, he's talking about this woman's heritage. She knew it. We may not recognize it. We may just think he was insulting her. But when he's speaking about dogs, he's also representing how much those people valued dogs. And even during times of trouble, those dogs served and provided. And so this lady embraces that and says, but even the dogs, even those who have that heritage, even those who cherish those animals and who become known for them, can still eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus said, because of that saying, your daughter's free. What saying? Why was that representative? Because this woman embraced what he was talking about. When he called her a dog, he was talking about the whole region, the whole area, the fact that she was obviously a widow, she was all alone, and the enemy was coming in. And she was willing to accept from him something that came from his table. She was not jostling to be at the table. She just wanted to eat what was coming from that table. So basically she was saying, if, if we were there and we had a feast and somebody came along and we said, I know where you're from, I know what your heritage is, you know, we're here representing this. We can't, we're not going to become like you. This is our food. This is from our father and our master. And for her to say, I identify with this area, and I want to eat that crumb that comes from your table, they were basically submitting to what he was sharing instead of saying, we have a place at the table. Do you see that? And when Jesus, when this woman said that to Jesus, a widow woman, because of this saying, you get it. Miracles come about because people are willing to accept what our Father is sending. And that's why Jesus said that. He wasn't insulting her. We often say this, but if you look at the history of the Phoenicians, you look at the history of the Carthaginians, dogs were big power for them. In fact, they even represented on many of their shields that, that are even represented in the Canary Islands today. You'll see depictions of dogs. So this wasn't a slight that he was saying to this woman. This was this woman saying, I'm willing to submit myself to what you're bringing, and I'm willing to eat what you are willing to divest to me from your table. And through that, 
miracles come. Through this woman having been, in Elijah's day, having been commanded by God to sustain the prophet. And when she obeyed that, even at the risk of what her little boy and her, in their desperation, were needing, God ignited a miracle and not only just sustained them, but sustained him and them for three years. That's an incredible thing. The miracle pathway continued to flow. But all of that is in this area. Now the enemy got in. The enemy obviously welcomed a lot of demonic practices, king of Tyre, prince of Tyre. The fact that this woman, her daughter, was demonized. I I wasn't there. I don't know the back history. But that whole area became known as a demonic place because the enemy came in and tried to pervert and twist those, uh, those strengths that God had personified through Hiram. But even if the enemy has corrupted those that we're sent to minister to and to bring the word of the Father, no matter what it is, whether it's a financial need, whether it's a miracle of some other sort, or whether it's a demonic possession, God, through the prophetic word uh, that Elijah represents, can break that off of them. And they can be provided for and freed. I just think it's very interesting. So I want to just talk after we establish this. I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff here. But this explains, this explains why God would send Elijah to that woman right there. Why didn't he send him to a woman, a widow woman in Bethel, as great as that is? Why didn't he send her to a, a widow woman in the outskirts of Jerusalem or in Shiloh or one of those high and holy Israel cities. He sends them to this woman. Why? And why would Jesus reference this? And why would he have that meeting with his disciples or send, send this woman away? Because this is where we are today. This is where we are today in a world that is teetering on the edge of outright demonism, in a world that's rejecting the Father by their ideologies, in the world that is trying to do away with the Scripture and all of the things that you and I hold dear before God, Jesus references this very thing. And, and Elijah deals with it here as well. Now, I want to talk about what this woman said. You know, all I have is a handful of meal in a barrel. It's not just that, you know, if you got a handful of meal in your hand, even though you might think this is all I got, it still looks like your hand's full. But if you're talking about it being a handful of meal in a barrel, that puts things in perspective. (laughs) You know, that barrel used to be full. And now it's nothing. And once this goes, that barrel's empty. It's perspective. She says that. And I, but, but through that, and through obedience with what God left her with, the miracle came. It's all a matter of perspective. It's all a matter of your focus. 
what, you know, with Moses, what is that in thine hand? The rod. Or all the things that have been talked recently and what we've experienced over the years in our studies about the hand, how it's a beginning point, but it looks like nothing. This woman focuses on the point of the miracle, but also a point of her pending death. What is, what is your focus? What, what are you concentrating on? Do you spend more time thinking about what you don't have as opposed to what you have? Do you think about what you wish things were instead of what God has given to you right now to facilitate what is coming. This was the issue this woman had to deal with. She had to obey God. She was commanded, but she, she was in a desperate situation. But what is that in your hand? You know, she could have given place to fear. There's a lot of fear around today, isn't there? Um, fear has torment. Fear is a driving force. You know, there's always going to be something to fear. You know, it's just, it's just true. You know, everybody was deathly afraid of COVID. Now, because of Ukraine, seems like most people forgot about COVID. I mean, it's just gone. I'm not, dis I'm not diminishing what happened through that horrible pandemic. But, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just incredible to me. I mean, you, you see here in Texas, things have kind of lightened up, you know, and uh, you saw some of our guests from other parts of the country come in, and they're still masked up. And we look at them and we think, take your mask off. But they're still in a place where they're petrified to take it off. I'm not debating N95 or any of that. I mean, we all did what we did, and God provided and saved us all. But, you know, there's always going to be something to be afraid of. Now, Vladimir Putin might start a nuclear war. Let's be afraid of that. Or we may have food shortages because Ukraine is cut off. Pretty soon bread's going to cost us 10 bucks a loaf. Let's be afraid of that. You know, gas is rising. In California, there was a picture of gas costing $6.66. And boy, that set all the prophetic people up. I mean, there was a big picture of that on Fox News the other day. And... Um, you know, let's be afraid of that. All kinds of things we can be afraid of. But what has God commanded us and what is in our barrel? Through that, the miracle comes. Um, sometimes we're, we're afraid of, we focus on things we don't have or we focus on things that we have no control over. We can't control a lot of the things that fear tries to engender within us. But what we can control is what's in our hand. What we can control is what God has given us. What we can control is that faith the size of a mustard seed. And what we can control is whether we will obey what God has commanded. What we can control is adhering to the prophetic word that God has given. Because those things, in the midst of drought, in the midst of death, in the midst of lack, 
those things are the key to the miraculous. Where is your focus? Now, you can look at that handful of meal in a barrel and say, we're dead. Before the prophet really came and influenced, she'd already figured that out. We're going to eat this, and then we're, we're, we're deep six. We're gone. In fact, we may not even be deep six because things are so bad around here, nobody will have the strength to bury us. So we'll just die. We'll just drop over dead. People will find us uh, withered up in a few months in our little hovel. That was her mindset. But when the prophet came, she obeyed what God commanded. She hearkened to that meal and did what God said to do with it. And through that, the miracle came. So for us, it's always going to be a scenario of what we believe. What is that in thine hand? Where's your focus? Are we believing the command of the Lord? Are we doing what he says to do with the little that we do have? And are we going to continue to go that way? Or are we going to subscribe to the world that's doom and death and hell and destruction? Another, another factor with this is that, you know, this woman, we don't know what happened to her husband. We don't know whether he went out on a cruise, uh, uh, whether he was a fisherman or a, uh, somebody that was a merchant, seaman. We don't know who he was, but he was gone. She could have just wallowed in the past. She could have wallowed in the fact that, you know, I had a husband, now we've got this son, and I'm all alone. You know, why did you cause this to happen to me? Forget about the handful of meal in the barrel. Let's talk about what happened leading up to that. You know, where's the guy that's supposed to be bringing in and partnering with me to provide for this place? You know, that woman certainly had a litany of thoughts that she could have wallowed in. You know, she could have been dwelling in the past. And if you deal in the past, you're going to be miserable. If you deal in victories from the past that aren't here now, you're going to be miserable. If you deal in woundings from the past and you're, you're still squawking about them, you're going to be miserable. If you deal with why things happened the way they did and why they didn't happen the way you wanted them to in the past, you're going to be miserable. Anybody that's dealing in the past is eventually going to be miserable. You can write that down, which is why the Apostle Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind, I press forward. Now, you got to be careful with that, too. I was listening to uh, an interview this past week uh, uh, from a guy that was very successful. And he, he said, you know, I've made billions of dollars, and I recognized that I just kept looking to the future, and I was an overachiever, but I recognized that everything that I achieved was just an accomplishment. It didn't really bring fulfillment. The pathway of achievement was kind of like a fool's errand. It netted me things, but it didn't really bring any fulfillment. And he said, I realized that that even though I need to look forward for me to really be happy, I need to be focused on what I have. I thought that was really astounding. I need to be happy with what I have right now. Because if I'm not happy with that, no matter what I get in the future, it's never going to bring any fulfillment to me. I thought that is really an astounding thing. So here's this woman with a handful of meal. She could have groveled in the past. She could have lamented the, the present, and she could have had no hope for the future. But when God commanded her, 
And when and and so how do you know God commanded her? Because God said he commanded her. You know, she might have even denied that God commanded her. But what did God say? Elijah, you get over to Zarephath, specifically you go there. I've commanded a widow woman. What what might he have thought when God said, I've commanded a widow woman? You know, he might have think, well, God, you you know, obviously Elijah spoke his mind to God. We saw that on the top of the mountain. Why are you commanding a widow woman? You know, Tyre and Sidon has a lot of wealth. Why didn't, why, didn't you, why didn't you command somebody that was a captain of industry to supply for me? Why are you sending me to a widow woman? Now, I don't know. I wasn't there. But he goes, and God said he commanded this woman, and when he gets there to the gate of the city, he sees the woman. And he starts off easy. You know, i got to figure out if this is really the woman. I think this is who it is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work up to it. Would you fetch me some water? The woman's going. He said, okay, there's the verification. Also, bring me a morsel of bread. <laughs> and then the woman talks. But God had commanded her. And what she had, she was going to obey with. And that is the point of the miracle. So I don't know where we are right now. Sometimes, you know, I recognize that we are really configured with the, with the very circumstances that Elijah faced there. We got wickedness in government. We've got people all around who are decrying the Father. They don't want the Father. They don't want the Word. They want to become more like the world than what God wants them to be. We're facing that scenario right now. And I think if anybody, if this was an amen shouting church, you should be saying amen. You know, but, but God has given us this mantle of establishing what Elijah represented. And um, there are people that God is sending us to who he's commanded And they may not have much. They may have a lot. Whatever they have, though, is what God is going to use. See, we get in trouble by saying, sometimes the enemy tries to play this trick on me, and you know I've confessed this. How are we going to accomplish what God has given us to do? But over and over again, God miraculously provides. Over and over again. He opens doors over and over again from this remnant, from this mustard seed. God is touching the world. Only God can do that. We're living this right now. But, you know, if we just sat back and said, well, you know, look, uh, you know, a lot of our people are out of town today. What can God do in this place today? There's just wonderful people here, but we look around and there's not a whole lot of folks here. How in the world? Is God going to impact Africa and South America and the new doors that he's opening through this bunch, this handful of meal in the hand of the Father? This barrel is pretty empty, but there's a handful. How's God going to do it? Right here. And so much so that Jesus references this. And the reason the people were so angry with him was that 
they knew that they had become an amalgam of the world. And they did not want to be reminded of what Elijah did. They did not want to be reminded about what Naaman did. They didn't like to be reminded of the fact that they were far away from God. And they said, well, as far as him speaking about being anointed and healing the brokenhearted and providing for those that are bruised and set free, we like that. Oh, man, who doesn't like that? You know, there were probably some people there that he hadn't taught anything yet. He just read that scroll. If this guy's got the goods, man, you know, I've got some chains on me. I'd like to have them off. You know, I've been, I've been brokenhearted. I want somebody to heal my broken heart. Yeah, that's great. And so he rolls the scroll up, and then he says, you know what? There were many widows all through Israel, but God sent Elijah to a woman in Zarephath. And there was a lot of people that were lepers in Israel, but God sent a general from our enemy, Syria, to come and be healed here. Those people knew exactly what he was talking about, and they became angry, so much so that they tried to kill the Lord God Almighty. You know why? Not just because it was a personal thing that they didn't want to acknowledge. Because they were so ingrained with the enemy's system. And that anger rose up. You know, Jesus said, they, if they hate me, they'll hate you. We've got to recognize that, that uh, our message <laughs> is God's message. It's a miraculous message. God is preparing people to receive it is going to be the word of the Father in the prophetic days where the hearts of the fathers are being drawn to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. All of those things being true, but the world is not going to like it. But what happened to Jesus? When they were trying to throw him off a cliff, God got him out of there. It's amazing. I don't think Jesus was a martial artist. I don't think he was a crafty fellow that was hard to bring down. If he was, Jerry Jones would be trying to sign him right now to play over at the Death Star. But somehow God made a way for him to, a, a means of escape. But there is a reason, and I've said this about five times now, and I'll say it this last time, that Elijah, how many of you would say, we have, we have felt that God has given us a mantle similar to Elijah. Um, the, the beauty of John the Baptist, who Jesus said, Elijah's here. Why? Because he obviously was setting the stage for those that God was calling to come and to do the will of the Father, and he had to make the way of the Lord for the Lord's way, and for the righteous nation to enter in. That's basically the ministry of Elijah. That's what we're called to do. We are serving our Father. We are in a time where um, the enemy and the world is uh, mobilized to stop the great move of the Spirit that's coming. We're in this place right here. And again... The addendum 
of Jesus' first sermon that we don't often focus on, which made those people furious. And again, I say, they weren't furious about the Isaiah 61 thing. I think they'd like that. People like that. I mean, you, you advertise you're going to bring healing. Woo, people will be lined up up the door. What have I got to lose? I'm in need. Yeah, sure. If he says he's got it, I want it. But when he bridged the gap to talk about Elijah and the widow woman, and when he talked about recognizing what you have, the world is coming to you, you're not, you're not going to become like the world. They don't have the power. God's power is with you. Whoo, man, bar the door. We're going to kill this guy. Why did Jesus say that, his first sermon? Because it's important for us to hear. God has anointed you, and he has. God is sending you, your feet beautiful on the mountains, to bring this good news. God has said that. You're typifying Isaiah 61. God has said that. You cannot remove the altar call of Jesus' sermon. <laughs> Where is Elijah? Going to those who need the Father. Going to those who need to believe him for the miracle power of the Lord in their life. Those who have no other solution, but God has spoken to them. God has commanded them. He's sending you. And even people in power, people in authority, who can find no solution through their wealth or through their strength, God will speak to them. There is a prophet who can speak the word to you. God will send them to you. But what's in your hand? Is that barrel empty? Have you been dealt a wrong deal? Or are you willing to believe and focus on what God has said and through that the miracle? Not just for the three of them to have a hi-ho meal. I mean, for three years, three years, that barrel provided. I don't know if it filled up. It may have just always been another handful. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'll have to watch when uh, uh, Netflix makes a movie about it so we can get clarity on it. But the point is that whatever we face in the years to come, the miracle power of the Lord, as long as we remain focused on what the Father has given us, it's going to be more than enough to supply. And I, I'm just really, I'm really thankful for this. So that whole region, even... You know, how Alexander the Great and Hannibal and uh, then even with the Roman Empire with Cleopatra being named after one of the queens of the Greek Empire. I mean, that whole area leading up to when Jesus would be born. Um, this was a crucial place that God sent Elijah to. And we're going to be sent to crucial places around the world. Um, and God's going to use you to bring about his kingdom and to see the power of God move. So hopefully we learned some things today that we didn't know. Why Jesus called that woman a dog. Uh, why this woman, this widow woman, uh, was... Uh, commanded by God in that location, why Jesus spoke about this at his first sermon, 
why the world that heard him there in Nazareth was furious and wanted to kill him, all of it finds its root right here. These are the days of Elijah, and that's you. So we come before um, communion time today to this table. And, you know, the beautiful thing about this is that, as we've talked on so many occasions, um, the, uh, the bread and the cup may seem like nothing. I mean, it, it, may, it may be just something that you recognize you've partaken of thousands of times in your life. For some of you, every day. And that's wonderful. But today, there is something in grace that God wants to impart to you for what is coming. And I'm very grateful to the Lord for this. You know, yesterday we were talking with our French-speaking saints, and one of them was talking about how that because she had learned how to study uh, in a deeper way in the Scripture, that she had discovered some things about this table, some of the things that we've taught over the years about the table, and how that the Lord had opened her eyes to some new insights of how God wanted to speak to her through this table and how it was just just invigorating her. It was just so good to hear her and her husband talk about how amazing things were being done just through this wonderful table. I, I don't know how you approach this table today. I don't know what you're expecting. I don't know whether you think, well, you know, I'm doing this because I want the favor of the Lord, and that's wonderful. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, the bread and the juice, I mean, we want to do it because the Lord commanded it. That's great. But there's miracle power here today. Some of you need healing. Some of you need supply. Some of you need direction. Some of you need an empowerment. I don't know what you need, but this little piece of bread in, in our hand. What can God do through this? What can, what can God do through this in your life today? This is the body of Christ broken for you. It's not reliant on the victories of the past. There's no leaven in this. There's nothing about the past in this. There's no leaven of the victories of last year's bread baking. Unleavened broken. Your identity is here. You are the body of Christ. What does God want to provide for you in grace today? Don't put any limits. Don't put any limits there. What about this cup? The powerful blood of Jesus. You know, the world would look at that and think, oh, that's just a little cup of juice. What can it do? What is that in your hand? God can do anything, and he's with us here as we partake at this table. So, you're Elijah's. You're responsible for the nations under the direction of the Father. God is commanding people around the world to be ready to receive you. That's quite an interesting thing. But it's what God's doing. And so, He wants to supply for you now. So in just a moment, in this house and in places around the world where the saints are gathered, we're going to receive these elements. And I 
I encourage you, rather, I dare you to believe God for what he wants to do in your life today. Is this just a piece of bread in your hand? Or is this a miracle provision that's going to carry you through no matter what's coming? I believe the latter is true. Father, I thank you today for this historical walk. <laughs> I hope that I didn't put too many people to sleep, but it's, it's why the backdrop of why Jesus said what he did and why Elijah was commanded to do what he did. I pray today, Father, that as we come and take this bread in our hand, that we will submit this to you and recognize that it is not only provision for our life, but that it is a symbol of what you're wanting to do to provide the identity of the body of Christ to people throughout the world who are called to be sons, who are called to be saints. I also ask for the impartation of your blood, the fresh sprinkling of the blood of Jesus upon the patterns in the heavens, upon our mind. If we've been living in the doldrums, if, if evil conscience has restricted our faith, cleanse it and let us think God's thoughts. And let us dare to believe. And let your sprinkling be upon our ministries, the places you're calling us to be, and uh, the creativity that you want to be uh, overflowing in and through us. Bless your people today as we come and as we receive and as we spend time with you. Remind us of what you promised. Give us vision of what your word is preparing us for. And let us be happy in you right now. Let us be delighted in you right now. Let us be encouraged in you right now. Let us do away with lesser things. But let's accept you right now. What a wonderful thing this is. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as a worship team ministers, I'm going to invite you to come and let's find a place to commune with the Lord as we partake today. God bless all of you for joining and let's, uh, let's enjoy his presence in this place. <laughs>